This morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Genesis. Today we're in chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leslie. I was talking to somebody this morning about what we do on Sunday mornings. And as I get up here in the front, and I was just talking about the fact that um, if I'm not opening this every week, and we're not getting what we are talking about from this book, from the Word of God, I don't have a lot to offer you in and of myself. In fact, nothing that would be life-changing, really. And so that's what we do here at Bethany Church. The centerpiece of our Sunday morning, the centerpiece of our service is the preaching of God's Word. And so we come to that again now, and I hope your hearts are ready. Ready to hear from God. Ready to hear from your Maker. Ready to hear truth and life-giving truth. Um, So let's do that now. Ready? In our Genesis Foundation series, we have been looking at the earliest history of the world. Uh, We're doing chapters 1 through 11 uh, over these next months. We've been looking at the history of the world uh, from a 50,000, I would say, foot view. From way up. A big earth view. Well, today, as we begin a new section in Genesis, we are going to zoom in. Like a camera that zooms in in a movie to get a detailed account of the creation of humanity now. So from 50,000 feet, we're zooming in now right to the ground level, really. And by doing this, as we see how much purpose and meaning and potential that God breathed into Adam's nature, we're really setting the stage for the devastating effects of the fall. I'm sure you've watched a suspense movie before, 
And as the viewer, you know something the characters in the movie don't. Have you ever had those, that, those moments? You know, the, the director or the camera gives you a glimpse into something uh, the, the person and the character in the movie does not. Uh, you, you know there's something behind that door, a monster behind that door. Don't open it. Don't go in there, you say. You know they don't. That suspense moment. This morning there is this impending suspense. Because we see, we know, don't we? How good everything was in the garden and the purpose and the the perfect paradise and the resources Adam had. And then we hear about those two trees. Those two trees this morning. We say, Adam, don't open it. Don't go in there. That suspense moment. And aren't you tempted maybe even to ask as you hear about those trees, why did God even have to put that tree? That tree of knowledge and good and evil. You've had that question before. Why did he have to put it there? Why did he do that? Today we're setting the table. We're setting the table with a feast so that when we get to the fall in a couple weeks, we will feel and understand the severity and the magnitude of what we lost. There's a suspense here. Well, we begin this new section this morning with some introductory comments because a phrase we see this morning is going to keep repeating in the book of Genesis. Ten times, actually. Throughout the book, and Moses used this phrase to break the book up into different sections of family history and narrative. It's the major divisions of the book. We're calling it, we're introducing this word this morning, toldot. It's a weird word. Toldot in Genesis 2-4. You see it on the top of your outline there. Which the translation of most Bibles calls it generations. You see it in verse 4 there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. But really, it, it, does, it doesn't just mean here is the genealogy or here is the family. Generations. It introduces a story, is the way Moses uses it, and a family and the enduring legacy of a person and his offspring that come after him. It's this, uh, this way of, uh, we could define it this way, uh, generations, family history, offspring. When Moses uses this throughout this book over 10 times, it's saying, watch what comes next. So verse uh, 3, excuse me, 4, really says, this is the story of the offspring of the heavens and earth when they were created. And since this is our first one, I thought we needed to highlight it this morning. I want us to get a picture of where Moses breaks down this book to let us know these are pivotal transitions when when it shows up instrumental humans who God worked through to create a covenant family. So take a look on your outline there on the screen. I broke it up for us this week just so you could have it at least once throughout this series to see where where, um, the headings are and where Moses used it to break the different sections. You see, what became of the heavens and earth? That's our today. Next one we'll see is chapter 5. What became of Adam? What became of the generations, the family, the history of Adam? down through Noah, and you see the bold ones are our four, will be our break, uh, divisions in our series, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, you see there, and Joseph. That's where our series is going to be heading. Um, even look just at chapter 5-1, just to see where the next one is, just to get a feel for it. This is the book of the generations, there's the word, told out, of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And so after that, it's going to go, okay, so what happened with Adam's family, uh, the, his progeny, the generations? We're going to start there in chapter 5. Just a side note, some commentary on that word because it's going to show up a lot, and I want us to be aware that Moses broke down the book like this. 
Well, let's take a look then. We're going to look today then as we come to now this story of the generations of heaven and earth. What happened? We've got to start with the creation of Adam, his nature. So let's begin there. The nature of man, the nature of Adam, we're going to see in these first verses is formed and then filled by Yahweh Elohim. Why would I use those words? The nature of the man is formed and then filled. As we come to this, this section of uh, chapter 2, there's a temptation to think that this was a, uh, a second kind of divergent creation account. But it's not really. It's a, it's a focusing in as we've talked about. The, chapter 1 is 50,000 feet. Now we come right down to the ground level. A closing in on the, the one special creation of Adam and then Eve. We said Adam and Eve last week or a couple weeks ago were the crown of creation. So isn't it understandable that God would want to focus in now here for us in a really special way? He's giving us a, a, a fresh appreciation, you might say, of God's creative power and then the nature that he's instilled, what he's put in us as humans. Real quick, he gives us a look at the setting and what earth was like in this moment. We get a picture of an untended Almost kind of messy earth, like your laundry room on a Friday, you know, like, or your bathroom or your garage. Like, I gotta get that thing in order. It's sort of an untended earth. It was an earth that needed someone to irrigate it and work it and garden it. It was without bush or small plant, verse 5 says. It's kind of strange. Apparently, day three when the vegetation was made, didn't include these bushes or small plants. And Moses makes sure not to use those words, bush or small plant, on day three, as he mentions them here, the creation of man. I think probably because there was no one to work the ground. There was no rain yet. And no one to really feed yet with the plants of the ground. No rain yet. A spring of water, though, it says, which is really strange. A spring of water that the Bible, that the ESV translates, mist. But you know what it was really more like? Kind of like an underground, uh, was it Old Faithful? Is that the geyser? A subterranean kind of geyser spring that, that had come from the ground. But there was no rain yet. And so we get this picture of a world that hasn't fully flourished yet, but it's a world that God's getting ready. There's water coming up out of the ground. It's everywhere. It's untended, but it's fertile, and it's getting ready for abundant growth. He's got it ready. So, he creates the man and woman to oversee that growth. Hearkening back to Genesis 127, to have dominion over, to take care of creation, to oversee it, to mold it, to shape it, to do something with the stuff that God made. So he makes man and woman to care for it. Listen to the simplicity and beauty again of verse 7. You can just listen with your ears or look down if you want. Then, this is setting now, this untended garden, this place, and the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Just simple. Up until this point throughout the creation account, God was called Elohim. I think 35 times. Only Elohim. 35 times, which is translated God. 
But now he's called, did you just catch it there? Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim, where Elohim refers to the, the creative power of a sovereign creator. Yahweh now is the personal covenant name for God that communes with and redeems and saves his people. Why introduce that name now? It's the first time now that God's called Yahweh, which he will be throughout the Bible. Why introduce it now? Well, for one, he's about to make a covenant with Adam. Here's the garden, work it and eat from it. Eat from the tree of life, you'll live. Eat from the other tree, you'll surely die. But Yahweh Elohim, which means creative covenant redeemer, is about to personally, intimately condescend to make a man from the dust. That's why he uses Yahweh now, to get the personal nature of God. So what's the first thing we learn then? What is the first thing we learn about our nature if, if Yahweh Elohim is coming down now to personally make the man? Here it is. We are God-formed. You are God-formed. Verse 7 says that God formed the man, formed the man from the dust of the ground. The word used for formed there is a word that communicates a very intentional design. Not haphazard, not thrown together at the last minute like we do with so many things in our life. Right? Get it ready, they're coming, you know. It's not haphazard like that. It's intentional design. Elohim creator gets personal now as Yahweh and he works out a perfect well thought out design. It's like a craftsman. I know some of you like to work with wood or build things or make things or use your hands. God's doing that. He's like a craftsman taking material. Isaiah describes him like a potter, actually. You turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? He's a potter making clay. We shouldn't think of him as the clay. But the thing he made should say of it, its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah is saying, we shouldn't say that God didn't form us because he did form us. You're like clay that he molded and shaped and formed. We are the pottery. He's the potter. He formed us. Very, very clearly, we are dependent, that means. We're contingent upon someone and something, someone else. We're the product of his wonderful mind, it means. Not haphazard, but like a craftsman taking, careful, or taking care over what he's making, what she's making. So beautiful, formed, and yet so earthy, so earthy, made from the dust. You might say not an earthling, but a dirtling, you might call Adam. It's a good way to remember it. Not an earthling, we're, we're dirtlings. The dust of the earth God used, which is also humbling as well if you think about it. We're made from dust. Scripture says we'll return to dust. It's a truth we don't really like, but it's what he says. He made Adam from the dust. Our culture tells us we find purpose and meaning and identity through an, an unfettered, un, uh, unbridled self-expression, finding our own way. And we're going to talk about that a little later on to this morning. Or so eloquently put, by the number one, it was the number one song for over, it broke records this last summer. And I'm not putting it up here because you maybe have heard it, uh, maybe you have, but because this 
think about this now. The number one song that's played billions of times, this was the chorus of the number one song that broke all records for the longest song at number one. Here, here's, the, here's the chorus. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Billions of times. Billions of times this line has been drilled in to people's hearts. And maybe it's a catchy song. But this, is the, this line has been going through uh, our culture's mind for, it was eight, 17, 18 weeks at number one. Broke all records. But the Bible, it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you were made from clay. You were made from dust. But we like to turn things upside down as that Isaiah verse said, the clay becomes the potter. And we turn the potter into the clay and we remake God into a lump of clay that we can do with whatever we desire with. Can't nobody tell me nothing. There's one who formed you. And, and he gives you purpose. It's, it's who you depend upon. You might even say that dependence, it is the condition of creaturehood. I repeat that. Dependence, it is the condition of what it means to be a creature, of creaturehood, this creation of Adam. To live, actually, you know how that plays out, to live? As if nobody can ever tell me nothing. It's to live in really an isolated prison of your own self-desires. If that's all you follow, and wherever they may take you, and through whoever you may have to trample on to get them, you were formed by dust, or in, by, from dust. Let that humble you this morning. Let it humble us this morning. But that doesn't mean you don't matter just because we were made from humble material. doesn't mean you don't matter because the second thing we're going to see is you were not only formed, you were God-breathed. God-breathed, Moses writes. What was that moment like? This moment between Adam and God as he breathes life into him. I mean, this is where your purpose comes from. This moment in history, right here, God breathes into his nostrils, Moses writes. Talk about a face-to-face -face encounter. Breathes into his nostrils. Derek Kidner describes it this way. Breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of almost a kiss. And the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. It's probably where the image of God is breathed into man. So to dust was given the breath of, of life. It's a way that it was never given to the animals. Animals have life, but they don't have the breath of God like this. Probably, like I just said, what gives us that image in chapter 1, verse 27 that we talked about. It's more than just animating our flesh. It's more than just uh, us just waking up in that moment. It gives us ears to hear him. Lives to mold in obedience to him. A spiritual understanding. A moral understanding. A conscience, even, you might say. This wasn't like God just using a, you know, an AED defibrillator. It wasn't just like that. It wasn't just a, a zap. This was so, something so much more intimate. This was now a living creature made in the image of God. 
body, soul, united, a comprehensive whole that you are, that you are. Here's what the section's telling us. You were made with great care and design and planning with an incredible capacity to serve your maker. That's why you matter. The potter who made us from the clay. Do you know when you, uh, you bring a baby home from the, the hospital for the first time, you know what, like when, when it was our first one, you know what I felt? I felt like I was getting away with something. I was walking out with this baby in a care, like looking over my shoulder the whole time, like, is this allowed? Like, can we take this person out of the hospital? Can we go home? And yet that home we had gotten ready. We had prepared that home. We had gotten ready, and yet as we're walking out, you're realizing your absolute uh, incompetency to care for this little being, this baby made in God's image, to care for this life. Well, God's the perfect parent. He just made his baby, so to speak, this this creature, this man. And like parents do, they get a home ready, a nursery ready, a room ready, uh, the car seat in the car, they have to come out and check to make sure you can take this baby home. All those things. God models this parental care as he takes the man home now. He takes him home. To a home he's prepared. Here's a place for him. Here's our second. The place for the man is planted and plenished. Plenished. That's an archaic word, isn't it? You're like, what? Well, when a preacher finds alliteration and it works, it's hard to pull him away from it. <laughs> the place for the man is planted and plenished. You know what it means, though. It really means to fill, to furnish, to provide. Think of replenish. You know, you know that word. Take away the re. Without the re. He's getting this place ready. Adam doesn't have to go out on the road by himself to find his home. Like our culture tells us to do. Get out there. Out on the road. Go. Or find his purpose. He is planted in the place of purpose. He's finally home. And he finally feels at home. He feels welcomed and comfortable and accepted in a home he's actually never even been to. Think about that. He feels at home. It's the longing that everybody's heart has on this earth. It feels really home. We know it's our place, and yet there's some strange exile, wandering feeling that we're not quite home, even though this is the only place we've ever known. Adam didn't feel that. He was home. With great parental care, he's provided for. He's not stifled, but he's given this ample space and opportunity to name things, to discover things, to garden, things to discern, and decisions to be made as he's planted and put in this place. This garden in Eden. Do you know the garden isn't actually Eden? The garden's in a place called Eden. It's kind of strange. I always thought, oh, it's it's the Garden of Eden. The Garden is Eden. But actually, the garden isn't Eden. It's in an area called Eden in the east where the garden is where God puts him. As Leslie was reading, you heard these strange names of these four rivers. Two we know. You heard two that you know, right? Tigris and Euphrates. The other two, we don't quite know where those were. But I think what Moses was getting at was that he wants us to see and understand this was a real literal place. This was a real place. Not some mythical, 
uh, add-on or mythical place or idea. This was a real, literal place somewhere near the Tigris and Euphrates, probably around modern-day Iraq, some people think, at the head of the Persian Gulf, maybe. would have been Mesopotamia at that time. But what's most important is that we see in verse 10 that it was, it was a fertile garden. A river flowed out from Eden that not only watered the garden, but it spread out into the surrounding region and turned these other four rivers into, uh, through these lands and turned those lands into places that were full of richness and gold and, and onyx and bdellium, you heard. What, what Moses and as God has wanted to see that from the garden went out. It was such a nurturing place that from it went out this river that blessed the surrounding areas even around the garden. Not only that, God causes these beautiful trees to spring up. Beautiful. They not only looked wonderful, but tasted wonderful too. What are we supposed to see here? Adam was in paradise. It's paradise. And in that paradise, he had endless provision. All he could ever want. He had an infinite menu of good choices in front of him. And permission to make those choices. And true freedom. It's the only time that a will was truly free now. Without a sin nature. He was free to choose from infinite good choices in front of him. Look at verse 16 with me. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. He was commanded even to partake of all those good things that God made for him. So he's made by God. He's with God in God's perfect place with perfect provision, naked and lacking nothing. He's in paradise. He's there. It's abundance in front of him. A smorgasbord, you might say, that he can keep going back to every day, all day long. But then these two trees... The first given is the tree of life in verse 9. That by eating, God would probably preserve, perpetuate his life in the garden by eating the tree of life. There's no reason actually to assume that Adam was immortal without this tree. He probably would have needed it had he remained in the garden. Or that had he never sinned, actually, that he would remain in the garden forever. We don't know that. In fact, many commentators think that this was a covenantal time, a testing time, a probationary time for Adam. And had he passed through that, uh, John Calvin said this about it, his earthly life truly would have been temporal even, even in the garden. Yet he would have passed into heaven without death, because there's no sin, without injury. God's covenant with Adam would have been kept the probationary period would have been over and possibly, there's, there's some conjecture on this, but maybe it would have been like Enoch. Remember that? He w- walked with God, but then he was taken up with, to God not to see death. Well, regardless, the picture of what we get here is what Bonhoeffer said. Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. As if they belong. It's perfect, extravagant paradise. But with that walking and belonging in that place came a purpose. Let's talk about the purpose now. The purpose of Adam. The purpose of the man here is in his, the blessing of work. The blessing of work that he's given 
And this boundary of obedience, this other tree, we're talking about the two trees. Look with me at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He had a purpose, to work it and to keep it. We don't talk about this enough in the church. We could do a whole series on this verse. But God gives value to work here. We don't talk about this enough. God is a God who brings order out of the chaos here. And he does this, do you see it? By getting his hands in the dirt of creation. Manual labor, God is doing here. And then he puts the man there to work it and to keep it. Probably dig it, actually dig ditches to irrigate it. It was probably the first thing. Remember, it's not raining. There's just this messy river everywhere. But it's ready to grow. It's an amazing statement that brings dignity to all work. All work now. Whether you farm or landscape or make clothes or clean houses or build houses. Anything that takes now the stuff of this world and makes something out of it that helps humanity flourish is God's work. Is God's work. If you're a farmer, when you farm, you are imaging God. If you're a house builder, when you build a house, you are imaging God. When you clean a house, you're taking a chaotic place, right? And making sure that people don't die by disease of something on the counter. You are imaging God. He's giving dignity to all work here. God's a manual laborer. That means your work matters too. Too often we look at work and those who work in the world of ideas or business or or finances maybe with a prestige. and, And of course those jobs matter too. They image God in unique ways. But they aren't the only jobs that matter. Or we look at the pastor or the missionary. We say, well, his, his job, that's the, that's the job that really matters. You know what I heard one pastor say this week? In the new heavens and the new earth, my job's going to disappear. Your jobs will continue. I'll join one of those too. But my job will disappear. Heaven and, the new heavens and the earth is a physical place. God's going to redeem a physical heaven and earth. The end result of, of, of our individual salvation and the story of the Bible is that this world isn't temporal. It's just going to actually be remade into something better. The perfect new heaven and earth. It means our work will continue without frustration in the future. But do you see what's happening here? Your work matters. It matters. It means no second-class jobs on this earth. The dignity of all work in the care of creation and humanity, it images God. The blessing of work we see in Adam. I mean, think about it. Have you given your job that kind of dignity? Because God has. God has. Your work matters. He's given him this, crea- this mandate to create and to care and to look and see over it, but he's also given him this prohibition this purpose of obedience. So the blessing of work, but what about this boundary of obedience? This tree of knowledge of good and evil. Look at verse 17. 
Uh, he said just before that, give him permission. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you surely shall die. There was a prohibition, a boundary, this one tree, and to eat it surely meant death. It's the first commandment given in all the Bible. So let's answer a few questions about it. There's three questions I want to answer real quick to close this out this morning. The reason. Why? Why this boundary? What is the reason for the boundary? Why put the tree there? Well, by this point, I hope this morning that we can see that Adam lacked nothing. He lacked nothing in the garden. The beautiful trees, the beautiful place, a perfect job with no frustration, responsibility, communion with his maker. He lacked nothing. But there's a temptation for us, isn't, isn't there? When you hear about this tree to think, oh, it's so unkind that for God to put that tree there. But do you know something? It was actually a gracious reminder to allow him to remember to remind him that you're a creature, Adam. I made you. And you're in a relationship to me as your maker. And I expect and demand obedience from you. As it stood there, prohibited, it represented to Adam everything that was an alternative to the blessing of God's presence and fellowship. It was a reminder that there could be, there actually could be an alternative to the blessing he had in front of him. It reminded Adam that he could never find meaning and ultimate purpose and value apart from his maker. And that the created, creative, created world itself would never provide self-made satisfaction. And he had everything he needed anyways to live the life of godliness in the garden. It was not a cruel test, but a life-changing Reminder that he would see every day. Here's what Alan P. Ross says of it. This prohibition in no way means that the man will be deprived of anything. It actually enlarges his potential, he said. For by hearing it and obeying it, the man stands in a new relationship with the one giving the command. It was actually a gracious reminder. It put him in the proper relationship that he was supposed to have with his maker and he had everything he needed anyways. He lacked nothing. I like how one other commentator, John Piper, said, he said, if you eat of this tree, though, Adam, here's what you're saying. I'm smarter than you. I'm more authoritative than you. I'm wiser than you. I think I can care for myself better than you care for me. You're not a very good father, and so I'm going to reject you. And that's what you'll be saying if you eat it, Adam. So don't eat from the tree because you'll be rejecting me. And all my good gifts and all my wisdom and all my care instead keep on submitting to my will. Keep on affirming my wisdom. Keep on being thankful for my generosity. Keep on trusting me as Father and keep on eating these trees as a way of enjoying me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There are 10,000 trees, every imaginable fruit, so just go eat, Adam. Be thankful. I've given them to you and see them as expressions of my goodness and savor them that way. He had everything he could need right in front of him. Do you see God's commandments to you like that? 
as good reminders, as guardrails to keep you out of the ditch on either side. That's what that tree was there for. It actually enlarged his potential to live as he was actually made to to live. His commandments are there as expressions to remind you and I, like Adam, of God's goodness. Taste and eat these things and see. And the million other good choices I put in front of you, Adam, Adam lacked nothing. It's incredible, but even as Christians, we are influenced by our culture So even when we see commandments and hear the word obedience, we tend to think of oppression, of restriction, of somebody keeping us from our true destiny. The only type of freedom we can really think of is this uh, negative freedom, the absence of restraints, freedom from something. That's how we think of freedom. That's our natural, probably, way our mind thinks. When we hear freedom, it's the freedom of restraints, the freedom from something, total autonomy. Here's a different definition. It's actually freeing to know who you are, whose you are, and what is reality and what's expected of you. It's a totally different definition of freedom than our culture gives us. This is freedom for something, not freedom from freedom for something. If we're really creatures and we're really from the dust and if we really have an ultimate purpose and maker, freedom for, to live in line with and design with your design and the designer. That's the tree. That's what the reminder that tree was. The tree was that reminder. It was a gracious, blaring sign. You think your way is good? It's not Remember, you're from the dust. That was why. So what's the temptation then? If everything was so good, what's the temptation to cross the boundary? We'll touch more on it in a couple weeks when we get to the temptation of Satan and Adam and Eve in the garden. But it can't be less than our, every, our own temptation every time we're tempted to, be, to sin. It's the temptation, the temptation to eat the tree is to flip things upside down like Isaiah said. Here's that verse again from Isaiah. You turn things upside down. You flip it on its head, right? The potter becomes the clay and the clay becomes the potter. It's the desire to live life without accountability to your maker. To seek wisdom and knowledge without God. To decide right and wrong outside of God's word and will. It's to turn your maker into a piece of clay. It's really what we do every time we choose the tree of knowledge and good and evil over obedience. Every time we sin. That's why it's never just about what you did. It's always about what's underneath the sin. The sin beneath the sin. The sin is just the symptom of a heart that's flipping the world upside down. That's what's happening. That was the temptation. That's what was in front of Adam and Eve. And Satan capitalizes on that. We'll see in a couple weeks. So what's the penalty? It brings death. Death to all humanity. That lyric, can't nobody tell me nothing? You know what that is? That's an autonomous death poem right there. Can't nobody tell me nothing? A death dirge, you might call it. But that's our temptation as well. To decide what is good for us. To establish our own wisdom apart from God and God's word as Adam did. But did you know there was a second Adam? 
Do you know that? Do you know there was a second Adam? One that had everything. Perfect place. Perfect garden. He had everything. And yet that second Adam laid it all aside. He laid it all aside to listen to God's word, to follow in obedience in the way the first Adam never did, even if it meant his death, even though he never ate from the forbidden tree himself. This second Adam, Paul writes about him. Thus it's written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. This second Adam restores life. How and who? He wrote also the same chapter. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's Jesus Christ, the second Adam. We'll see in a couple weeks. Adam failed his, his temptation. Did Jesus fail his? No, he didn't. He makes you alive by dying on the cross for you and giving you his life. His life for yours. His life for yours. And once you receive that life from the second Adam, through repentance and faith, that life can never be lost as it was in the first garden. It never can be lost. And you know that when you come to him, just like Adam had everything he could ever need in that garden to live that life, do you know Peter says in 2 Peter, he gives you everything you need for life and godliness when you come to the second Adam. It's the same dilemma. Do you believe Jesus is enough? We sung about it this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is enough? And in him, even though this garden, this world now, sure there's hurts, sure we lack things, sure things look upside down. But the reality is we lack nothing in Christ. You have everything you'll ever need. You're lacking nothing in Jesus. And the more you trust this, the more you build your life upon it and take it into your soul and sit here in this room together and hear it spoken and taught and sung and do it at home and in life groups, the more you do that, the more the temptation to flip the world upside down, to become the potter and turn God into the clay, it lessens in your life. It lessens. Oh God, tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. Freedom for. What am I free for? You are mine, and I'm yours. That's what we're free for. Let's pray. Our mighty God, our maker, we are so tempted to turn the world upside down, to try to turn you into the potter, and, or you into the clay, and us into the potter. Lord Jesus, we're just beginning to explore this idea that you were the second Adam. As the first one represented all of us, you represent those who place, place their faith and trust in you. And so, Jesus, be that for us today. Be our everything. Let us see everything else in comparison and in light of what you are, that we get to taste and see, God, that you are good in Jesus Christ. So give us that hope this morning. And let us live with that new freedom, freedom for. It's in Christ's name, amen.